And so as we read Matthew eleven twenty through 30, that's what I want us to be thinking about today, is what is at the heart of the Lord? And so I will read Matthew eleven twenty through 30 for us, and then we will pray, and then we'll get going. Verse 20 begins, When he began to denounce the cities where most of the mighty works have been done, because they did not re- repent, Woe to you, Chirazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon and for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the living God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we get to see the insides of your heart, that they are gentle and lowly. And I ask that you would help us to perceive what that means today. I also ask that you would help us to understand just this whole text as there are different facets and different components and even we're seeing your great severity in it, but we're also seeing your sovereign grace and then we're also seeing your meekness and your humility and your great affection and love for us. Would you help us to see these things and that we would behold them and that we would become practicers of these things? Lord, just help me as I communicate your word and communicate it one clearly but truthfully. We love and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. I'll begin with a question. What is in your heart? What is in your heart? Now, when I say that, I think there's two possible ideas that come to mind. One is more likely than the other. The first one, though, that I'm sure probably not many of you are thinking about is my physical heart, my flesh, the atoms, everything that's in there. And that's not what I'm necessarily getting at as what is in your heart. But what I think most of us probably go to when we think about what is in our heart, we immediately go to the idea of what is at our affection? What are the things that we love? And there's reasons for this, right? Society makes up this idea that uh, your heart is where uh, you, your love is, it's where your joy is, it's where your gratitude is. And those are true. Those things are good, and we can understand those things. And we've even talked about that, as I've talked about um, your heart is where your treasure is. But when this text is talking about your heart, and when we're going to look at what Jesus is talking about your heart, what he's getting at to is he's getting at to what is at the center of you. What is at the center of you? What is fundamental to you? What motivates every single thing else in your life? 
That is what Jesus is getting at to right here when he begins to talk about his heart. And what we're going to see right here is what is fundamental, what is basic, what is at the very bottom of Jesus' heart. But before we begin to get into this, we have to kind of go over the context. We have to kind of pave through the context. What we have to do is we have to begin to see God's severity, first of all, and that's what we'll see in verses 20 through 24. But then we'll begin to see God's sovereign grace, the idea that God is in complete control, but that also within his control, he is also gracious, and he gives us things that we don't deserve. But then underneath these two ideas, which sometimes seem to contrast one another, the idea of God's severity, which can be his judgment, and the idea of God's sovereign grace, which is his freedom to give us salvation, we're going to find his heart. What is it that motivates Jesus? What is it that moves him? What is at his center? But to begin this, we have to begin by looking at God's severity. So in verse 20, He begins by talking about the cities that are around him. When he began to denounce the cities where most of the mighty works have been done because they did not repent. And so what he starts talking about right here is all these places that he's been going and performing miracles at. Jesus throughout his time performs many miracles. Whether it's turning water into wine, whether it's turning a few bread loaves into 5,000 bread loaves. And when they see these miracles, the hope is the idea that they will respond and believe in Jesus. That they will trust in him. But what's interesting about this text right here is it says they did the opposite. They saw the miracles of Jesus and they did not repent. And here is the curse that he's going to lay down on him when he says, Woe! Woe to you, Terazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And we're going to stop right there and we're going to cruise down to verse 23 because he's going to bring it up again. And we'll come back to verse 22 in a second. He says, And you, Capernaum, you will be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works have been done in you that have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. What Jesus begins to do is he says, We're going to look at these cities that I've been doing my miracles in. These cities like Terazim, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Let's look at these cities and let's see what's going to come about them. And what's going to come towards them is it's going to be punishment. It's going to be destruction. It's going to be God's judgment that he's going to lay upon them. But why is it that he's laying this judgment upon them? Why is it? First, we already saw it, they did not repent. They did not seek the Lord. And let's just think real quick about this judgment that God's going to bring. And let's think about the severity for a moment. And we need to talk about this severity because it's not something that the culture likes to talk about. We don't like thinking about God's judgment. We don't think, like thinking about terms like wrath and hell and punishment and on and on. We don't like those terms. But think about what he's saying right here. He's saying to Bethsaida, Terazin, and the other city, he's saying what's going to come upon you is going to be worse, it's going to be worse than the punishment that was laid on the cities of the Old Testament. So New Testament cities, they're going to get punishment. Old Testament cities, they're going to get punishment. But it's going to be worse. And think about one of the cities that he compares them to. He compares them to Sodom. Do you guys remember the text of Sodom? Genesis 18, 19. God comes before Abraham, and Abraham hears God in a conversation saying, will we show Abraham all that we are about to do? And Abraham goes up to God and he says, God, what are you about to do? What's going to happen right here? And he says, well, I'm about to actually unleash 
judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham begins to plead with the Lord, and he says, Lord, please do not unleash this judgment, this destruction upon these people, if you find 50 righteous people. And he says, all right, I won't do it if I find 50 righteous people. But then Abraham comes back and he says, what about 40 righteous people? What about in that instance? If there's 40 righteous people, don't lay judgment upon it. He says, okay, fine, I won't lay um, if there's 40 righteous people in there. And eventually Abraham keeps coming back to him, back to him, and back to him until he says, God, if there's just 10 righteous people in the massive city of Sodom and Gomorrah, which probably had hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in its day, if there's just 10 righteous people, please do not lay judgment upon it. But what's the problem? God can't find 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what begins to happen? Well, God graciously rescues a few people out of there, Lot and his wife, but as soon as they are rescued out of there, God begins to literally, the text says in Genesis 19, unleash sulfur and fire upon the city. So that destroyed what? Man, building, and everything that was on the ground. All the crops, every single thing that was there, completely annihilated. And then to make it more severe, Lot, when he's leaving the city, his wife turns around and looks back to it as this idea that she's wanting to remember, wanting to go back in some way. Pillar of salt, dead, on the spot. That's severe. That's harsh. That's real, though, right there. And how can we look at that, and especially with the world who, who looks at it and they say, how could that be so? The way that we know this is so, it's not because of what Jeff sang, but it's because of what the song Jeff sang attests to in the scriptures. That God is holy, holy, holy. That he is completely innocent, completely undefiled, and that anything that is defiled that comes within him, he can punish, he can destroy. And anything that sins deserves what? Romans 6.23, wages of sin is death. And so what's going to come for these cities, these New Testament cities that he's talking about right here? Oh, it's going to be destruction. But it's going to be much worse. It's going to be much worse than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. And just think about that. Sulfur and fire came upon those people. Wife's, Lot's wife turned into a block of salt. And he's saying, woe to you, New Testament cities. It's going to be worse for you. But how is that so? Why is that so that it's going to be worse for them? Well, it's because they've seen more. They know more. They've seen Jesus. They've seen his mighty miracles. And what Jesus does right there is he contrasts it where he says, if I would have been back in those Old Testament days, back in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes and they would have followed me. But because you, you see me in the flesh, you see God revealed to you and you know more. You see more. You understand more. You're going to face greater severity. Because the more you know, the greater you are to, and liable to judgment. Think about it like this. We have our daughter, Ellis. She's one years old. And she likes to break the rules that we have right now, whatever rules you can have for a one-year-old and communicate to her. But let's imagine Ellis later when she's 10 years old. Okay, Ellis is 10 years old. Some of you guys are getting there, and Danny's like, I'm sorry, don't, don't get there. But when you get to 10 years old, and Ellis is breaking rules, and she's disobeying us, and she's going wayward, are we going to punish her more when she's 10 years old or when she's one-year-old? The answer is obvious if you have a kid. 10 years old. Why? Because they know more. They see more. They understand more. And they know much more. They are disobeying, blatantly disobeying. And the same thing is what Jesus is saying right here, is because you see more, you are going to suffer greater consequences. 
greater severities was going to come upon you. But let's hold this for a moment because this isn't just written for Jesus' day. This is maybe one of the scarier texts, and I say that all the time. There's a lot of scary texts in the Bible. But this is a really scary idea to think about. So let's think about first. Solomon Gomorrah, fire, sulfur. Wife, Lot's wife, block of salt. New Testament cities, going to get greater severity of judgment. But what about us? Where do we fit in all this? How much do we see? Last time I checked, we have the whole counsel of God written in these scriptures. We have the whole attestation, the whole testifying of who Jesus is in these words. Who knows more than the New Testament cities? We do. We see so much more. And think about just what's happening right here in Matthew 11. Jesus is still walking around. Jesus hasn't even been crucified, and Jesus is saying judgment's coming for you. Do you know Jesus has been crucified? Do you know Jesus has been resurrected from the dead? Who is going to face more severe judgment? The scariest thing is we are going to face even more severe judgment. And what this tells me right now is if in this room, if, hear this qualification, if you're an unbeliever, someone who doesn't hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ, someone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ and his atonement for sins, and that he loved us so much that he lived a perfect life, and that he died in our place, and that we believe in him by faith, if we don't believe those things, and you're an unbeliever, the worst place you could be is right here. You know why? Because I'm showing you more. You're seeing more right here in the scriptures. And the longer you continue to go wayward and continue to disobey and continue in disbelief, the more liable you are actually for judgment. That's the scary part of this text, is that the more you begin to understand, the more you see, the more you're actually going to be judged. Just look at it, verse 22. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And 24, but I tell you, that will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Why is it going to be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon? Because they'll receive less judgment. Why is it going to be less tolerable for the New Testament cities than for us? Because they'll receive less judgment. But if we don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to receive great judgment. And I get it. That's a heavy text, and that's a hard text, and difficult things to think through with it. And what I want to tell you, and what I want to commend to you, is this idea of, in light of what this text says, believe the gospel. Trust the gospel. Hold on to the idea that Jesus has taken the death that you deserved. The condemnation that's laid upon those cities is what Jesus took upon himself so that you wouldn't have to. However, though, what I also want to say is that's not far enough. That's not enough. What do I mean? If, and this is probably not an if, this is probably a reality for someone in here because it's a reality for most of my students and it's even a reality that I see in most of Christianity. If, The only reason, and right now this is a good thing to consider, if the only reason you would believe in that gospel of Jesus Christ is because you don't want to go to hell, that's not enough. I'll say that again. If right now the only reason you would believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ is because you don't want to go to hell, it's not enough. What do you mean, Brother Robert? Well, I walk around all the time with this idea, and I talk to lots of people about why would you believe in Jesus? Because I, because I don't want to go to hell. Because we're more afraid of hell than we are actually in love with Jesus. And I'm going to show you a text in here that's going to make sense of this and why that doesn't work. But what I'm going to tell you, and I've got to press this to you, is that if 
The only reason you're following Jesus is one, to not go to hell, or maybe it's to go to church and be a part of a tradition, or maybe some other reason, or success. That's another one I heard. These are ones I actually just heard from my students this last week. Or success. You want to follow Jesus for success? We don't actually love Jesus. We just love what he gives us. And so if all we do is believe in Jesus because of this text right here and because of the weight that's coming upon us, it's not enough. Well, how do you know that, Brother Robert? Prove it to me from the scriptures. Let's go to John 5 real quick. And John 5 should be up on the scriptures, um, up on the screen. John 5 is this really interesting text where Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees. And he's talking to these people who are really, in some ways, they're legalistic in some ways, but they know the law. And if anyone has a relationship with God, it's these people. That's what you would think because they're the religious people of the day. They go to church. They go to Sunday school. You know, they come on Wednesday nights, all sorts of these kinds of things, right? They have it all going on the outside. But what Jesus is interestingly going to say to you is, you're missing it. You're missing it all right here. Why? Why is it? Verse 43, and we'll connect it back in a second. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. But verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Okay, that's a really important scripture to get. If you want to go to heaven just because you don't want to go to hell, the fundamental reason why you want to go to heaven is you, your glory your own sake, your own salvation, this thing that you don't have to experience it. However, this is what Jesus is saying right here is, if you want me, you have to want it for my glory, for me to be made much of. The way that you get to heaven is not by selfish means, but it's rather by knowing Jesus and doing it for God's glory at the end of the day. Because if all you want, and I keep saying this over again, just not to go to hell, Ultimately, that doesn't save anyone. I had a conversation with my students and actually had a conversation with these high school boys in here because this idea rocked their world. Because one of them asked me at the end of it, they asked, so can I not, so I'll say it this way, so is it a bad thing for me want to, to not want to go to hell? That's not what I'm saying. You shouldn't want to go to hell. You shouldn't want that. But what you should you want greater than just not going to hell? You should want Jesus more. You should want Jesus more than you don't want to go to hell. You should want the glory of God more than you just want them to not go to hell. I know I'm stepping away from Matthew 11 right now, but I need to communicate this point. And so we need to begin to see through the rest of this text in order to do this, because right now it's just kind of this overwhelming weight of judgment laying upon us, is we need to actually see God is glorious. God is wonderful. God is beautiful and actually delightful. My intention really throughout the rest of the sermon is to show you and to make you want Jesus more than not going to hell. I want you to want Jesus more than not going to hell. Even let's say if hell was a theme park or your favorite vacation or the beach or wherever, I want you to want Jesus more than wherever it else is on this earth. And this is what this text is going to begin to do. And hopefully this is what's going to provide salvation. Because the other way saves nobody. Verse 25. 
at the time, Jesus declared, so he gives the judgment, and now he's coming back to a new subject. And this is the idea of God's sovereign grace, and I love this idea. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have, and this is a really interesting text, I want you guys to think about this for a second, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now, we're going to skip over verse 26 for a quick sec. We'll come back to that. Verse 27 says this, though. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is a really interesting text. It's a great text. But what's going on in here? Who is Jesus revealing himself to? Who is he hiding himself to? It's who he chooses to. This is what's miraculous about this text and something that a lot of people don't like to wrestle with and don't like to dig into. But the text clearly says Jesus and the Father hide things from people and reveal things to certain people. Now we're going to get into why in a quick sec that happens. We'll get down to that in a moment. But let's just think about this. The fact is that we are all sinners. We're all wayward. We've all gone away from God's way. We've all rebelled against him. But Jesus, should he actually open our eyes? Should he reveal himself to us? If we actually understand sin, and we understand actually what grace is, that it's a gift that you don't deserve, no, he shouldn't. But what does he do? Rather, what God does in this awesome picture is all the people who've rebelled against him, and it's definitely rebellious people, because think about the context for a moment. It's people who are rejecting Jesus. It's people he's cursing. It's people he's putting woes on. And it's the people who deny John the Baptist and deny him as well earlier in the context. So it's not people who are following him. Jesus doesn't look down through the quarters of time, and the Father doesn't look down through the quarters of time and see, oh, you're going to love me, so I'm going to love you. That's a common idea out there in America right now, the idea that, oh, I'm going to love this person because they're going to love me back. That's the way they think about God. But that's not what that text is saying at all. It doesn't fit the context. Rather, what it says in verse 26, why does he choose to do these things? Verse 26, very clear. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That's the end of it. Why does God choose to display mercy and grace and kindness to believers? It's not because he looks down and sees forcing faith. It's rather because he chooses to, because he sovereignly does and wants to. And this is so good for us to understand because this means that grace is actually free, that you can do nothing to merit, to work for, or to earn grace, but rather God decides even within himself, I'm going to dispense it on someone. It's what we call sovereign grace. See a picture of this real quick in Hosea. Hosea is the book we're going to be going through, and so I wanted to just give us a little bit of a taste, but it's also just a wonderful taste to get the idea of how God dispenses his grace. Because remember, we're not lovely people. We're unrighteous people. But God says, I'm going to set my love on you and my affection on you. And Hosea 1-3, or sorry, 1-2, is exactly that idea. Listen to what God tells Hosea to do, and it represents who he is. When Yahweh first spoke through Hosea, Yahweh said to Hosea, go. Take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking Yahweh. Now think about that for just a second. Let's think if the Lord asked you to go love someone who had committed adultery, and maybe we're not sure of it yet in the context, but we'll find out yet later that it is going to happen. 
maybe even against you. Would you be able to do that? Let's look at Hosea 3, verse 1. And Yahweh said to me, go again. So here it is again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Why does God command Hosea to love the woman right there, the prostitute? Well, it's not because that woman's faithful. That's obvious. She's unfaithful. She's a prostitute, as we're going to see throughout the book of Hosea. But it's because God chooses to, because he freely does so, because he wants to bestow grace. And we'll even see this coming out of the Lord's heart here in a second. But even just recently, and I don't know if this lady's a Christian, and I don't know if this man's a Christian, but I saw an article recently about a football coach named Urban Meyer. Now, Urban Meyer is a really famous football coach. He's won national championships in college, and now he's coaching the NFL. And Urban Meyer recently got caught um, in sin. That's just what it is. And some sort of act of adultery, whether, you know, whatever it was, got caught in this. And there were videos and things like that that were sent all over the place and obviously very embarrassing to him. And Urban Meyer has a wife. You can imagine how that would hurt her, how it would break her, destroy her. Like I said, I don't know if Urban Meyer's wife is a Christian. I don't know. But I did see an article recently with her speaking out. And she said, what I know is one thing, and this is amazing that she says this if she's not a Christian, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. And we can give grace. Where does that stem from? Does it stem because Urban's been so faithful? No, of course not. Rather, it stems from a heart that says, I choose to forgive. And we look at that idea and we say, oh, how pitiful. How could that woman do that? She shouldn't go back to him. No, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you. Exactly how God loves you, brothers and sisters, is that in all of our unfaithfulness, and we're all unfaithful, God says, despite all of this, I'm going to pursue you, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to make you mine. It's wonderful and amazing. It's not because of you. It's because of his sovereign grace, because he chooses to. And hopefully you see that in the text. I would love to discuss that more if anyone wants to discuss afterwards. But then what we see, and this is so awesome. Actually, let me pause here for a quick second, just give a word of application. Um, One thing, because this is really important, is one thing this definitely teaches us is that your salvation, and this will come up later, is not legalistic. Your salvation and being a Christian is not going to church. You know that. Your salvation is not going to Sunday school. Your salvation is not reading your Bible. Your salvation is completely on Jesus. But two, what this should also begin to shape is it should shape your communication with others. Okay? Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, when others transgress against us and go against us, we should be gracious to them. Not because they deserve it, but because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve what Jesus has done for us. And that's hard. I've been in conversations with people, um, whether it's this church or other churches, where people want justice, they want righteousness, and those things are good. And we should want those things. But what they don't want to do is they don't want to extend mercy and grace. Grace and mercy is forgiveness that people don't deserve. You can't earn grace. It's unmerited. And it's only received. And it's only given. And where does that flow from? 
It flows from the wonderful, beautiful heart of our Lord. And listen to these verses, 28. So I emphasize the sovereignty of God right there, and it's awesome to see the sovereignty of God choosing people and hiding things from people and revealing things to people. But here comes human responsibility right afterwards, verse 28. Come to me. So you're not a robot. You gotta come to me, verse 28, as it says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How Jesus displays himself is he calls out to his people in front of him. He says, come, receive me, and quit laboring. And what are they laboring for? They're laboring because they wanted work like the legalistic Jews of their day. They want to be seen as righteous in the eyes of God. And so they want to do enough to be good enough before God. And Jesus says right here, quit. Quit laboring. Quit your laboring, Christian, to think that doing certain things are going to make you better in the eyes of the Lord. That's not going to help you. And why is this? Verse 28 again. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And we'll get to the next part of that. I love the next part. But listen to what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We're going to find out more about this yoke in a second and what it is. But the yoke in his day, and also in our day, I'm not a farmer, but it would be something that you would put around the um, neck of an oxen or a cow, and it would pull um, something behind it. And so it would be obviously very heavy, and it would weigh on a person. And that's the imagery that Jesus uses right here. He says, come and take my yoke upon you. So take the yoke of the law off, take the yoke of condemnation off, and put my yoke on you. And what his yoke is like is it's much better than the yoke that was laid upon the oxen. Rather, it's like throwing someone, this is an an illustration for it, it's like throwing someone who's drowning in the ocean a life preserver. And that's the yoke that he's throwing. And who wouldn't want to just go out and grab that yoke and grab that life preserver and hold on to it for dear life? What kind of yoke is that? What person would say, oh, that's too heavy, that's too burdensome, I'm swimming right now, I can't hold on to that? No. Jesus throws us a life preserver. To save us. And that's what his yoke is like. Why can he do that? Because of his very heart. The very center of who he is. For I am gentle. And I love the idea of Jesus being gentle right here. And to describe it, I want to go to a book written by Ray Ortland or um, Dane Ortland, his son. And Dane Ortland describes this is what it means for the Lord to actually be gentle with us. He says this. Jesus is not trigger-happy, nor harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not pointed a finger, but open arms. That's what Jesus is like at his heart. Open arms. He sees you, brothers and sisters. He sees you, sinners and people who are going away from him, and he's open to you. He wants to receive you at his heart. He's gentle. But it's also this idea that he's lowly as well. And the idea of lowly is often translated in meekness. The idea that someone's humble. The idea that someone thinks less of themselves. Jesus is not going to come to you and be an imposing figure. Jesus is going to come and be a humble figure to you. He's going to call you to himself. Because Jesus loves to forgive sinners. And so what is it that Jesus offers right here? He offers us forgiveness. 
He offers us rest. He offers us relief from our burdens and our legalism that we try to live on. And he offers us hope even for the future days we're going to see here in verse 30 in a moment. But I want to finish with a quick illustration to try and conclude what this is and what's going on here. So just think about, before we get into the illustration, the idea that his audience would have this legalistic perspective of getting saved, going to heaven. They would have to do all of these things to be there. And Jesus, what he's trying to say is, no, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I want you to imagine that there was a company, we'll say a construction company, that was owned by four, a four-generation family. So maybe almost going all the way back to the beginning of the United States. And the company started with the great-great-grandfather, and then moved down to the great-grandfather, then the grandfather, and then the father had owned it. And it was passed on, and as it was passed on, the company from its inception continued to grow and grow and grow, and it became massive, and it was all over the United States, and it had thousands of employees and brought in lots of money, really big company. And the expectation came within this company is that whoever is going to be the son of the next father and so on and so on after that is going to obviously continue to run it. And there's going to be this expectation. There's going to be this idea that that is for sure what will happen. And that's what began to happen. As there was a son who began to work his way up into the company, he became a manager and became even higher than that and continued to work and work and work. And one day, he became anxious. He felt burdened. He felt the expectation of four generations and all this success become to weigh on him. And he thought, what would happen if it would all collapse upon me? And he runs to his father and he says, Father, what if I can't do it? What if I can't actually uphold the standard that you want me to uphold? What if it all collapses on me? And his father responds back with these words, well, if it does, you will still be the only thing that I need. A son. What did the father do in that statement? Removed all the burden. Removed all the weight. What is the father concerned about? He's not concerned about the success of the son. He's not concerned about him upholding the standard that he's upheld. He's concerned with him being his son. Jesus calls out to all of us and to all of you, Come to me, for I am gentle and lowly. And read these last words, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text and we thank you for you revealing yourself to us. That you are the sovereign God and you are the judge of all the earth, judge of justice and righteousness and holiness. But God, at the same time, you are gentle and lowly and you bend your knee to us. You come to us with your heart and you say, come to me. Lord, might we accept that free offer of grace, that free offer of mercy, and understand that you love to forgive sinners. We love and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.